Hello, Marty Murphy. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Um, so you're you're up in uh, you're in Saskatchewan, right? Yes. And I was referred to you by a friend of mine that I had was my first guest in the podcast, which is Lisa Bullier, and that's a long story and last name there. But um, and um, so she she recommended you to come talk and said you have a really amazing story about recovery from a very dark time. And so I'm going to, I'm going to, I got questions for you, but I guess we'll start off with, can, can you tell me about that time, where you were, what happened, what was going on and, and tell us how you got to that, that, I guess that dark place. Um, there's so many things. <laughs> um, there's so many angles that lead to mental illness that can lead further, you know, um, I would say like the straw that broke the camel's back was when I got divorced. Um, then I went right batty. Um, but what I've learned through all my years of recovery is um, I don't grieve or I grieve improperly. Um, and there's been a lot of very important deaths um, at a young age and just through life. Um, the most important, the most uh, not important, the most pivotal one was when my grandma Wallieser, some other people out there will know her, <laughs> she passed away when I was 13 and um, it just left an empty hole in my life. Um, but you don't, you know, it wasn't until years later that um, um, when I was married, he had, his brother was in a motorcycle accident and he was left um, permanently altered, I think would be the way to put it. Um, and that's been a really, that's been a real tough one. That was 2004. That's been a real tough one to, to this day to grasp. And um, past that, um, my ex-husband's cousin, who I was really close with, um, like, I almost won him in the divorce, <laughs> but he, he was just a wonderful human being. And uh, he was diagnosed with bipolar when he was 16 and um, kind of went through his own dark stages. And um, he eventually um, ended up taking his own life. And I believe that was six years ago. And just, those are the three that um, that I can't seem to fix, you know. <laughs> um, on top of that, my mental health counselor reminds me that um, grieving can mean many things. Grieving the loss of my marriage, um, grieving the loss of a job, you know, anything that is a loss, you need to grieve. And um, by the time it came to, once once my husband and I split up, that's what just all of a sudden just set me off. You know, I was just a different person. I had to go on antidepressants and um, it didn't work well. But then I got into another relationship um, like eight months after we split up and that's kind of where my addiction started. And that's where the real downhill comes. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me let me say, 
first before we say anything else um you're talking openly about your own mental illness and i'm using your words there i don't want to want to put words um i can't tell you how much i appreciate that and and i know that that is not easy it is a it is for sure a stigma um and i think that's in every society i don't think we're unique with that but i i think we look at people and we can we can easily dismiss someone who, who, like you said, doesn't is doesn't have the tools to to cope with things that happen in life, or right. you know, and and I'm not I don't want to totally. tell you what's going on with you, but you know, I appreciate you coming out and being willing to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, after you know all of my recovery years, even in the mental health zone, um, I realize now that I had wicked OCD when I was married. Um, And at the time I was just like, I'm the cleanest, most awesome person ever. Like people joked, you could eat food off my floors. And then I had, then I got a mental health counselor and she's like, that's not cool. (laughs) I'm like, but dude, I kind of want to be like that again. Like, and she says, no, if your OCD ever starts catching up with you again, we need to talk. So I, I now, I know now that what I didn't know all the way through my twenties is I've always had depression and anxiety. It just wasn't at the point where I couldn't handle it yet. (laughs) So was OCD, was that something you developed as a way of, is that like your coping mechanism that, that got put in place or? Um, Most definitely. And I was, I was always kind of a neat freak growing up, Uh, super responsible, um, I was just that girl. I was just that responsible, clean house, Martha Stewart type woman. I am nothing like that person today. <laughs> well, and I can just say that I always admired Barney because she always seemed to have it all together when we were younger. And I remember when she was married to her first husband, I would stay at her house when I was home on the weekends and just like, oh my gosh, she has everything pulled together. Why can't it be more like her? Oh yeah, I had lists all around and like, if my house could look even half of how I used to have my house, I'd be a happy lady, but I have too many kids for that. <laughs> I know that feeling. Yeah. You could clean it up, but then five minutes later, it's going to be in the exact same state. So why bother? Oh, yeah. Point, right. Yeah. So, okay. So, so you mentioned that your grandma passed away when you were 13. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the start of a cycle for you because you just never really knew how to grieve for her. Is that, is that right. what you're saying? Yeah. So what, what kind of, um, I don't know if symptoms is the right word, but what did you, what, if, when you look back on it, what were you seeing at that time that was, that was demonstrating itself with this? Um, it's kind of hard to say. Um, once my grandma passed, it's like she was such a prominent woman in our lives that not having her there, it's like everything kind of fell apart. Um, It's not that it totally fell apart, but being a kid, um, you know, we used to, my grandma had a pool, right? So we'd ride our bikes after school and we'd get to grandma's house and we'd go swimming and then she'd feed us little pizzas and then she'd tell us not to tell my mom that we ate and we had to go home and eat more supper because so she didn't get busted and, it just, and my grandparents owned a grocery store 
and we always got to go into the grocery store and they give us a little brown bags to put our candy in and it's just it's little things you know just the little things that define your childhood and um and she passed away i believe she was 67 um from pancreatic cancer so it was too soon yeah. um it was like a month to three months ish after we even found out at, until she passed so it was quick and um another thing i went to her funeral but the day after she, the day after we um found out she passed away um i woke up and i had like wicked stomach pains and uh my mom just kept saying oh it's your nerves it's your nerves this is some big news and it's hard to take it's just you'll be fine just you know come for hugs <laughs> and um three days later we're at the funeral and i was in doubling over in pain so my aunt had to take me away from the funeral. So I basically missed the whole funeral and the burial and, you know, where you would get your closure, kind of. And um, within four hours, I was in the hospital and that day I got my appendix out. <laughs> oh, wow. So, you were <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was a big deal. <laughs> so you were, so, wow, that's, that's timing for you, I guess, right? right? Oh, yeah, I have impeccable timing. <laughs> um my my wife discovered her appendix was she had hers removed like and found out she was pregnant at the same time with our first baby so anyway <laughs> so so if you fast forward to you said when when your mayor when you got divorced is when you started really experiencing your issues right so can can you talk a little more about that i mean what what was going on what what happened in your life I mean, the divorce happened, but what, what happened with you and, and where did you end up from there? Um, well, pretty much from the minute it happened, I, I can only describe it as having the rug pulled out from under you. Um, you know, looking back, like it was obvious, but <laughs> at the time it was, you know, it felt like they pulled the rug out and um, I found that in the first two weeks I lost he was 30 pounds oh my. in two weeks, just stressing. And uh, my mom always said that, that the best diet is the divorce. But, <laughs> you know, it didn't last. Um, so, yeah, I, I dropped 30 pounds in two weeks. And um, I, I, it took me a couple months to realize that, I was just going through the motions, like I was waking up, I was miserable. Um, so wake up, I'd go to work. And if my daughter was there, um, cause we have a daughter, um, I would wake up, get her ready and, you know, take her to the sitter, go to work, come home, absolutely zero ambition. Um, I found that I loved her, but I had no ambition to do anything with her. And, it took a little while of that for, and then I kind of clued in like, this isn't normal. You know, like this is not normal. You, like, I love this kid. Why do I pretty much care less if we do anything together? I want her here, but I'm basically just keeping her fed and watered, you know? <laughs> and uh, so then I went to, um, I didn't have a mental health counselor then but I went to a doctor and I got put on antidepressants 
which really pulled me out of my slump. Like not completely, you know, like not completely. Uh, depression still a roller coaster. And that's the first time I had ever been medicated for it. But it did pull me out of that slump to where I actually wanted to care for my daughter, not just, you know, put food in her dish. <laughs> um, and then uh, pretty much from there, things were, you know, all right. Uh, until, um, I always say this, I, I, got, I went to a friend's wedding in Punta Cana and I won it in the divorce because my ex and I were supposed to go together, but I was like, mm -mm, this is mine. <laughs> this is my trip. <laughs> and um, so I went to Punta Cana for the wedding and it was a really good friend of mine. And that is where I met my next relationship. Um, happened to be my friend's brother. And um, it was also the first time I tried cocaine. First time you what? I'm sorry? Tried cocaine. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Nothing like being out of the country and be like, all right, I'm in a foreign country. Let's just, this is, seems like a great place to try cocaine. Right? Yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I don't know where we're going, but I'm interested. Right? <laughs> but again, it was like my impulse. Um, usually I have calculated decisions and, you know, I don't just go, you know, like I always call my drug and my addiction zero to cocaine. There's no gateway drug. There was nothing. It was zero to cocaine. And um, that, and it was so easy for me to ward people off. Like, oh, Marnie would never do cocaine or any drug for that matter, just by everyone knowing the person I was. Um, then when people started catching on a little bit and I'd, I'd ward them off a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. What, hold on. So, <laughs> so do you, do you know why you, you, cause cocaine is, is immediately addictive, right? Right. Um, you, why did you Why did you decide to do it at that at that moment in time? When you where were you in put? Did you say Punta Cana? Yeah. Okay, and you were at a wedding. What What? Where did that come from? <laughs> you know, um, my my actual thought process was this is the perfect time to try it. A because it'll be it'll be gone before I get home, and nobody will know. <laughs> And sure. right? <laughs> it'll be gone. <laughs> so you went through all of it. Is that what you're saying? No. <laughs> uh, but no, it just, my, it was like, well, nobody's, who's going to bust me here. So I tried it and I hated it. Um, it made me feel really shitty. <laughs> and um, my, I eventually just walked back to my room because I felt really gross. <laughs> and then I didn't do it again for a couple months until I really started dating my next relationship. <laughs> uh huh. So, should we call him John? Right? I don't know. That's what I came up with. How about Juan? Yeah. What's, what's a, we'll call him Juan. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. One. <laughs> We're using a secret name. So, yeah. so I mean, so did this become a habit then? I mean, cocaine? Yes. Is that okay? Yeah. So then, um, 
by the time, you know, so then I got home and obviously we kept talking because that was supposed to be, one was supposed to be a secret that ended there, the whole part of it. <laughs> the cocaine, the little fling, all of it. It was supposed to end there, okay. but it didn't. Um, we kept talking when we got home and it was evident that um, it was part of his life, which you're going to ask me at some point in this interview, like no red flags, Marty? Like none? Oh, there was about a thousand red flags <laughs> of why to walk away. But um, something I have in me now that I didn't then is the confidence to be alone. And I was just, you need to be in a relationship or you're not going to be happy. So I put up with an awful lot of crap and red flags and baloney just because this is what it's supposed to be like, right? Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be in a relationship and you're supposed to, but. So where did, where did, um, so, so you're, you're with Juan and you're, and he's, he lives here, I guess he lives yes. here. Okay. Yeah. And he is a cocaine addict. It sounds right. like. Right. And, and brought you along for literally the trip. Right. <laughs> and I mean, how long did that last? I mean, where, where does that take you? Cause I, I, you're clearly not on, well, I'm, I'm assuming based on how we're talking, you're, you're not on cocaine right now. Right. And that's not, you know, that's not a, that's not like, you know, you stop biting your nails. That's, that's for real. So right. where, where did that lead you? What, where did that take you to? Um, you know, it was about a year and a half, maybe a year and a half. Yeah. And, um, we were already spending a generous amount of money on cocaine and, um, we weren't living together yet, but, um, we were spending basically both of our paychecks on cocaine, but what we called still manageable. And, um, once once you once you kind of fall into this crowd it seems to be like those those are all the people that are around it's like all of all of my friends that that are with me now um were with were with me then but they were all standing on the sidelines going what the fuck <laughs> um so basically that was so a year and a half later so in I think it was like August of 2012-ish is when we smoked crack for the first time. I smoked crack. I'm not sure. I can't speak for Juan. And, and I can't blame all of this on him either. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, I'm a big girl. I just literally went along for the ride. <laughs> and um, just obviously... I, I just have like, even to this day, I have like impulse issues, you know, it's like, fuck it, let's do it. You know, but it's not saying like, Hey, let's go for ice cream. Well, yeah, screw it. Who needs supper? Let's go. But, <laughs> um, but by August of 2012, um, I started, it started becoming evident to everyone around me that things were wrong. Um, I got fired from my first job, which was the most embarrassing thing in my life. Um, it, it was terrible. Um, from that point, 
um, I kind of went on a bunch of just going through the motions still, right? Um, I'd get another job and then I'd lose that one. Then I get another one. I, that technically was the only one I got fired from, but the other jobs I had, um, they, right, they um, were more of like, they'd hear something, somebody would tip them off of who I was and they'd be like, well, we're gonna have to lay you off. Like, so sorry, you know? And there was quite a few yeah. of those. Um, and then I was on the, I was, it was a roller coaster of that too, of the drugs. And um, in 2013, I had my middle daughter. Um, I'm sorry, you had what? I'm sorry. I, I, I had my middle daughter. Autumn. Okay, okay, yeah. Uh, the noisy one from our previous talk. The one that I met, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, I, you know, and it, it's beyond the point of not liking to admit it, but I used through almost all of it. Um, she ended up, I cleaned up a couple times. Like there's a lot of stories in here that are like dig real deep, but we'll skip some of those. <laughs> um but I gave birth to her in September of 2013 and she came three weeks early. Um, it was like, it was supposed to be our last bender and then we're gonna clean up so that we can have this baby and take her home, right? Yeah. Well, just like this kid she is today, she just like busts into the room like a Kool-Aid man and that's how she was born. She's like, oh wait, you're not ready for me? Here I am. And, uh, so she was apprehended right from the, right from the hospital, um, which was really, <laughs> you know, it was, it, I didn't even know how to describe it. Um, like I knew she was okay. And even when I went into labor with her, like when I got into the hospital, I'm, I rattled off um, like, hey, I smoke crack. You know, I just want you guys to know I don't, I told him right at the hop and that's why Juan thought we, we had, um, that's why he thought she was apprehended. Um, but they likely would have tested her anyways, because the child services feelers were already up before that. Um, because I have Paige, right. And, um, so then, uh, I cleaned up for a little bit after Autumn was born and uh, got another job and um, got laid off from that one. And then I got another job. And I was really, I really think I was on a roll. Like, um, I think I was doing well. And then I got a job at a doctor's office. And um, I was there about a week. And even throughout that week, they're like, geez, like, we can't believe you've only been here a week it feels like you've been here longer like you just fit in so well and um all of a sudden so then i left work friday all of a sudden um i go to go to work monday but they call me and she says we just we, we're gonna have to lay you off um and i said okay well can you tell me why because i know that you have the right to ask them why and she says we just have a sixth sense that you're not going to work out. Okay. 
<laughs> and, you know, but even when in my interview, they were like, we handpicked you out of 250 resumes because we think you're right for this job. Um, but it was kind of one of those things where I had somebody tipping people off where I worked and then they would phone in and be like, Hey, you know, you have a drug addict working for you. And it was kind of one of those things. Um, that person saw me at that job and by Monday I was fired. <laughs> and, um, that getting fired from that job, um, was another, it was just boom. All right. It's go time. And that's when I went into full blown hundred percent addict, like didn't go to work, didn't take care. Like my mom had my daughter. Um, my ex-husband had my oldest daughter and it was just full blown addict. And that went on until wait. <laughs> I uh, self-sabotage. Oh yeah, self-sabotage. I'm great at that. <laughs> I just thought you being there. Yeah. Um we'll just say it was it seemed like I would be like good for six months ish. And then I would be like six months of just going completely 100% addict, never being home, avoiding my parents, everybody. Um, just living, just living in the night and doing anything you can. Okay, not anything you can. I'm not one of those girls. <laughs> doing as much as you can to keep the drugs coming. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then that would lead me to, okay, then I got pregnant with my son uh, when my daughter was six months old. So <laughs> when I got pregnant with my son, um, Juan chose to uh, part ways, we'll say. <laughs> and um, that's a nice way for saying he left me. And... Um, from there, um, pretty sure I went on a full, pretty sure I was on a, pretty much almost his, all of his pregnancy, um, right up to six and a half months, I used nonstop, like, you know, it'd be up for nine or 10 days, then you'd pass out for four, and then you'd get up and, um, I remember being like so skinny, <laughs> like so skinny. And obviously my stomach was growing and all I was was belly and these little stick legs. And um, I can't remember what happened that made me, I think I finally just sitting around with um, a guy that I'm still really good friends with today. I was sitting around with him talking about detox and he says, Marn, you should go, you know, you got a lot to clean up for, you should go. And so I finally made the phone call and then I cried my eyes out because I wouldn't be able to do drugs anymore. You know, um, it was crazy. So then I did in fact, uh, clean up for like, it was January. Well, that's not a long time. <laughs> Uh, 2015 for January and February is all I was clean for. And then I had my son in the end of February and he was apprehended as well. Just because I already had one in 
in the system, they weren't letting me take another. So that ruined my life. And it just so happened that a week before um, he was born, Juan and I came back into contact and um, I don't think Aiden was two months old and I fucked off again for quite some time <laughs> until I got sent to jail. But when I was pregnant with my, my son, um, when I went to detox, it was right at Christmas. So then I came home for Christmas and then um, ended up not just staying sober, ended up just going bat crazy. And um, it was probably the biggest bender I've ever been on in my life. The minute, it's the most days I've ever stayed up. Um, it was, yeah, just relentless. And that's, it's during that time I picked up my drug charges, which is ultimately after I had Aiden, um, I went on, it was just, again, full-blown addict, just living up in my house and people bringing you drugs, basically. Yeah. And um, until I was so much of an asshole with my breeches that they just sent me to jail and said, suck it, you're not coming out. So <laughs> from there, <laughs> now, now the jig was up. I'm like, well, shit. I'm good. Um, now what? You know, um, I spent about three weeks in the remand center in Regina. And I decided to, by that point, even that little, my head cleared up a little bit. And I'm like, you know, I got to clear, I got to get my shit together. I got kids at home. I got whatever. So I was talking to my lawyer on the phone and she said, um, you know, they're offering you 10 months plus 42 days for all your breaches. Um, if you'll just plead guilty. Um, knowing what I don't know, I would never plead guilty. <laughs> Um, guilty, guilty to guilty what? To what? Per, per uh, trafficking cocaine. Okay. okay. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but I, you know, and, and in that story, I didn't sell drugs, but I was the middleman. I was, I was the person who will bring you your drugs. And then I get my cut out of in between here. Right. So I was that in between person. So 100% trafficking, apparently. <laughs> um, and so whatever, I, I did plead guilty to it. Um, but like I said, knowing now, if I knew then what I know now, um, man, people get off for everything. But for some reason, even the police, um, the police were in contact with my mom for some reason, they were just dead set to make an example out of me. And actually, when I got arrested for the very last time and got sent to jail, um, the cop said to me, he says, hmm, Marnie Murphy, the drug queen of Estevan. And if I had anything in my mouth to spit out, I would have, like, are you kidding me? And I laughed at him. I'm like, are you serious? And... You know, how else do you have all you have? You know, because I had a house, I had a car. Um, well, you want to know how I have it? Because I haven't paid my mortgage in five months. 
And people keep licensing my car for me because I'm the only one with the license to get them their drugs. So <laughs> um, that's how I have it. And I was just floored. They thought what they thought and what they got were two totally different things. <laughs> and I, I pled guilty and went to jail. For, for 10 months plus 42 days? Right. And, plus, sorry. <laughs> there's a plus. Um, I had more charges because there was, we ran out of money. So I'd walk into Walmart like all the other people would do. I'd walk into Walmart and grab some off the shelf and go return it and get a gift card. And then you take the gift card and buy a, buy a prepaid visa. And then you can give that to your to your dealer so clever until you get caught um and so i got charged with fraud as well i always forget about that one but <laughs> it's there <laughs> um but i didn't get any extra time for that one apparently because i cooperated i can't remember okay so let, let's let's uh let's do a little summary so <laughs> <laughs> so you at this point you've had you've had uh Children number two and three. Yeah. Number number two was born. Uh, was it three months early that you said? Three weeks. Three weeks. Okay. I thought you said three months, and that really threw me. But okay. And they both have been taken off by, by the system. It sounds like your your daughter was living with your parents. Yeah. And did your son? Did your parents take your son as well, or did they uh, no. foster care? Um. My aunt, like my mom's sister. Okay. Uh, my mom swore that she was not going to raise another one of my kids. Yeah. Um, because, well, I'll tell you, my middle one's a handful. And um, so my mom's sister stepped in and she took Aiden. Now, can I ask you, have your kids had any health problems be from from your from your use of, turned, of drugs? Turned out no. Okay. Um I was, I was told that it's going to sound stupid, but it, like it was talking with doctors and stuff like, cause I've always been worried that something's going to come up and, but nobody's got asthma. Nobody's got allergies. Nobody's like, they're just healthy kids. And it's like Russian roulette. Like, don't get me wrong, but, um, I lucked out. Yeah. Good. I lucked out. Um, there was one, like the one doctor said to me, because I only smoked it, you know, if I would have injected it or other means, um, then it would have went straight into their bloodstream. Hmm. Right. Interesting. Right. <laughs> and so, okay. So, and they're born and somewhere within the time period after that, you, you're, when you're, when your son is taken by the state. I don't know if that's what you call it in Canada. That's what we call it here, but taken right. by the government, whatever. Um, you just go on a, you're massive bender. You're just done. You just, right. you pitch it all in. You, you can't keep a job. And every time you get one, somebody sees you, that recognizes you, they tell the employer and they fire you. And, right. and which, which is understandable. That would continue to spin spiral you. Right. Cause right. you don't see any hope. Right. And, every time you try to get your shit together. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to get it together when every time you try, well, and you're probably not, you, you don't feel like you can be honest with a potential employer because then they right. will hire you. So it's like, it's right. like this constant. Uh, and so you end up in prison for somewhere around 11 months to a year. 
So what, and, and it seems to me that that's kind of what straightened you out. Is that, is that fair? Right. So totally. what's, what is it in prison that, that, that did that, that's, that got you off of that downward spiral and, and that's the ideal situation. That's what we want to happen, right? It's not, it, it unfortunately ends up not usually being the story, but for right. you, it, it sounds like it's really working out. So what brought you back to um, being a productive person from, from being in prison? Um, taking me to jail, it took me away from the person I was most addicted to, which was Juan. <laughs> and, um, no matter what, no matter what he did to me, no matter how long it had been, um, I would always just be like, oh, come here. Basically, it was, you know, it's just ridiculous. But um, what jail did for me is it took us apart. And there was a really toxic relationship. Like, I, people would always call us toxic and I'd be like, shut up. Like, <laughs> it, it is not, but looking back, Oh dear. Um, so that was by far the best thing. Um, not being with him, the jig is up kind of, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and another thing is that I had, you know, when you have like your phone call, you have your one free phone call. Well, I had, it's a minute. You have one minute free, right? That's it. And, uh, I, he's the first person I phoned with my minute. And I called and it's all you could hear is a bunch of chicks in a truck and another dude. And uh, it's just really noisy. And in that whole minute, he had to go. <laughs> right? So I'm like, bitch, I'm phoning you from jail. <laughs> and uh, he had to go. So it still took a very long time to break myself from whatever was was pulling us together or pulling me to him um it's taken many more years than just jail to finally break that cycle so so you spend your 11 months in jail did it end up being a full 11 months no i uh i was a very good prisoner and <laughs> <laughs> i got out in just over eight okay and um, model, prisoner. <laughs> model prisoner. Well, that's good. You know, I, that's what they say, right? Don't they? Right. Um, so you get out of prison and of course I, I'm, I'm assuming you don't get your kids back immediately. No. And now you have to, you have a parole officer and did they help you get employment or what, what happens? What happens from there? What, what, so, cause like, this is a, I'm sure you're still on this journey, right? Of, of right. staying straight and and maintaining yourself because that's it's it's i don't want to i don't want to say things about you but it, it that's really a lifetime thing right it's it's a constant right. growth and each day is a day farther away from it but you're still one moment away from that lifestyle again right, right. i'm sorry i, I don't I'm not potential trying. disaster yeah um so how do, how when you get out of prison how do you how do you recover what are the steps you take and and how did you get to where where you are today um, I definitely, um, the parole officer was no help. Um, 
I I had a, I had a new attitude. Like I had been off drugs for almost nine months by then, and um, I had taken many addictions courses in jail. And um, did I mention that all the different drugs you see in jail that I didn't do? Like I couldn't believe it. I said to the lady, "If I didn't do any of those drugs in jail, what makes you think that I'm going to pay for them when I get out?" <laughs> but so whatever i get out of jail and i have my first meeting with her and i'm explaining to her like this is just what i'm gonna do like give her my plan this is where i'm gonna live and she's like well we just expect you to fail anyways and i'm not lying to you when i say that i left that meeting and i was so goddamn pissed off that i phoned my mom and like you want you want to know what this bitch said to me she looked at me and said, you're going to fail anyways. And I looked at her and I said, you don't know me. So now when I see her, <laughs> see so, that? <laughs> I'm guessing that she'd just been in there long enough and had, had so few successes and, right. and you know, I, I can't, that's got to wear on a person, right? You, you, most people going to social work is probably super hopeful. That's why they go in. Right. And then, if you have you see a hundred people, and only, yeah, and you see a hundred people, only one of them, you make a difference in their life. It, that's boy. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so where, where'd you go? Where did you find it in yourself then? Um, well, I'm stubborn. I'm stubborn. And, um, by this time I already knew what I want. Like I, this is what I want. I don't want to do drugs. Drugs were never me. You know, like it took me 30 years to do cocaine like drugs aren't meant to be with me. <laughs> um, I just, I, once I put my mind to something, she gone. Like, I, <laughs> I just also having that, like her little faith in me, I wanted to prove her so damn wrong. And, and I still am, you know, and it just, she just fueled a uh, fire in me that, Maybe that was her tactic, but <laughs> I don't think so. But um, I just, by the time I got out of jail, I was ready. I was just, I, I was ready to be me again. Um, I had been on medication while in jail, both anxiety and depression. Um, so things were starting to level out. Um, my head was almost my own. And so I went home and I already knew what didn't work twice before. With each baby, I went to live with my mom so that I could help raise them. But I couldn't raise them on my own. You know what I mean? Like they would allow me to live at my mom's and help raise them. Um, but that didn't work twice. So when I got out of jail, I said, we need to do something different. I'm not going to just move into your house and feel like a 15 year old kid who just been whipped, you know, like, um, it doesn't work. Um, I love my mother, but we don't live together because we're too much alike. <laughs> um, it just didn't work. It didn't work. I moved out when I was 17 years old and my mom thought I would always come back and I never did until I decided to get, you know, 
all these expect unexpected pregnancies that are supposed to happen when you're in your teenage years, not in your thirties. <laughs> um, so yeah, I moved in with my sister and lived alone with no kids, which I got to tell you, it was glorious. <laughs> um, and then slowly, um, we, we kind of moved them back in. Like I got supervised visits. Um, and then we'd have, and then it got to the point where we'd get supervised, um, put them to bed and then they'd actually sleep over and then they would leave. And then I had unsupervised sleepovers and then they just come check on, on us in the morning. And that went on for a whole year of, you know, making sure that, and I, they didn't want to drop the ball this time, I think. So I really had to keep it going. Um, so I drug tested three times a week. I had, I couldn't have had a job when I got out of jail um, because I had my parole officer, my mental health counselor. I had a parenting counselor. I had, um, who else? The, the drug testing. It's like every day I had like five places to be. Uh, to check in with all my people. And um, after that year was up, I think it was like April of 2006, no, 2017. April of 2017, Autumn got to come home. Um, so then Autumn was home. And just, just Autumn and I, they wouldn't let Aiden come yet. And thank goodness. <laughs> because needed to be a little bit stronger for the two of them. Um, and then by May of that year, maybe the end of May, beginning of June, they sent Aiden home too. So it was, they still both, because being, Aiden was with my aunt for over like a year and a half. Um, that's who he called mom. That's who, you know, that, that's his life. My aunt was his life. Um, but slowly, as we had our visits, he realized that I'm his, I'm, I'm his mom. And, um, but he, I never, I never hindered his relationship with my aunt. I still don't to this day. Um, Aiden goes with my aunt at least twice a week because he just, he wants to go to his visas, he says. And so they still have a very special bond, Aiden and her, and my mom and Autumn as well. Um, but I can't get Autumn to sleep over anywhere, even my mom's house. <laughs> but it's been, you know, it's been a, it hasn't been easy. Um, so they came back and like the first two years I was out of jail, I call it, I was puking rainbows because all I did was spew happiness everywhere and like, oh my God, life is so good. What are people bitching about? You know, like, shut your mouth. You can and I couldn't stand right? right, exactly. And, um, and I did. I just puked rainbows for like two years. And that honeymoon came to an end. And I started to really roller coaster on the depression. Um, so then we, we had to go. We had, I had to do it all over again, but without drugs, right? Um, drugs weren't my go-to. Then they still aren't when I get super stressed out or I feel like, geez, I'm going to put my kids up for adoption because they won't go to bed. Cause that was last night. Um, I smoke cigarettes, you know, and I still have 
really wicked addiction issues, I just know that I won't have them with drugs. Well, we've all had nights like that with our kids, right? So that's not, you know. Right? <laughs> I, I put a shout out on Facebook that they were up for adoption. So <laughs> I, I would take Autumn. <laughs> it's her spirit animal. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, so are you working now or what are, what are you I am. Doing? Okay. Um, it, there comes a point where social assistance won't carry you anymore. Um, and they told me I was perfectly capable of working. So I had to go to this place. I can't remember what they call it, but it's called Advocates for Employment is what it's called here. So they sent me to this place and um, I was nervous. So I'm like, oh my God, they're gonna make me get a job. And anxiety is like still roaring. Um, Cause I can't work in the public because man, I frog at Walmart. So I can't work there. And I, I can't work at all these places that already got fired. <laughs> and I was just nervous about, about it. But so I went for my first meeting at Advocates for Employment. And the first person I saw, like, am I, can I, can I put a name, like a mention? <laughs> I think it's okay. Um, you don't have to use a name. You can, yeah. Okay. She'll, she'll know who she is. Okay. Um, and the first person I saw was someone like me. Same stories, minus the children. <laughs> um, and when I walked in and saw her, I thought, holy shit. So then I got to sit down with somebody who's already been through what I'm, what I was going through at that time and whatever, we had to do a little bit of testing and see what I'm capable of doing. And, um, all of a sudden she's like, okay. So I was telling her that I was repainting furniture furniture. Um, we just come across a whole bunch of old, ugly furniture. So I painted them ridiculous colors and they were selling like crazy. And, so, and then all of a sudden I started getting orders and I, so we're, it was kind of like a little side gig and this girl looked at me and she said, why are you looking for a job? You already have one. So we named my business. Um, when I got into jail, I got a Phoenix tattoo on my ribs on my left side. And I, and again, I think I told you this, I hate cliches. But um, you, you, there's nothing more that describes my story than a phoenix, you know? And that's why I got phoenix tattooed. Wait, so hold when, on. Wait, you got a tattoo in jail of a phoenix? No, no, this okay, was not a say, yeah. So you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you it, got it, out. Yeah, I, I don't want to, I'm trying to find something in my view here to show you what it would look like if it was a jail tattoo. <laughs> That's, we're good. We're good. <laughs> I've seen a lot of jail tattoos and no thanks. Um, uh, also, <laughs> little sidebar about jail is when I went into jail for the first time, there's a sign like right where they're doing all your business and getting you where you're going and stuff. And it says you have an 80% chance of leaving here with hepatitis. Right? I almost pooped. <laughs> like, um, I was like, shut up. I don't have hepatitis now. I don't want to have it when I leave. Like, I'm not judging people who have it. However, I don't want to have it. And uh, so I have successfully made it through jail and come out of it 
that 20 percent <laughs> congrats thank you. thank you so now you're you're running your own uh i guess refurbished furniture business it sounds yes. like that and do you have a a, a business name that you want to throw out there for maybe once by yes. furniture it's called phoenix furniture hmm. <laughs> hence the tattoo story okay right? yep and um I've been doing that for almost, almost four years and so far have made, have profited all those years. <laughs> um, it's still a work in progress. Um, but this is, it's definitely something again, just like the Phoenix, you built it from, you build it from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And um, the last four years I've been doing it out of my dad's garage. And I'm a furniture hoarder. Turns out that um, hoarding is also a symptom of all of these <laughs> mental illnesses. <laughs> well, and no, no, you're keeping inventory. That's inventory. That's not hoarding. It's uh, my mental health counselor begs to differ <laughs> because I I told her the same thing. I was like, no, it's dude. Now when people need something, they just come to me. Where do you, so where do you get it at like garage sales and yard sales and stuff? Or where do you get your furniture? Um, the first couple of years we would buy them really inexpensive pieces. Um, right now I'll basically, if it looks like it's dead, I want it because then when we're done, it won't look dead. So I always tell people like, don't throw anything in the garbage. Call me first. <laughs> and a lot of people call me. And I've gotten a lot of nice pieces from a lot of nice people who then donate it to me. And which is wonderful. Um, Cause I have an exorbitant amount of furniture. <laughs> um, somebody wants, somebody wants a dresser and I'm like, here, hold on. I'll send you 42 pictures. <laughs> like I have, inventory not yeah. Hoarding. yeah that's why that's why i tell your mental health counselor right yeah so you, um, business. it sounds like you've really found yourself with with this business like it's you know it's, yes um pretty much my whole life through my marriage um i just thought that i wasn't meant to have a talent i always used to joke that it's marn's time to shine and that meant i'd come in and clean because i just cleaned my whole life and um, I didn't know that I could do anything. And honestly, um, I was in, in some relationships, I was meant to feel like I couldn't do anything. And so I just didn't think I could. And slowly, slowly I just do more. It goes from like uh, me just painting stuff and then, then being like, dad, you need to fix this. You know, and oh, dad, I need you to drill the holes so we can put these knobs on. You know, I used to have my dad change the sandpaper for me, like because I didn't know how to do it. And four years later, and now I'll I'll see something, and I I don't work off of plans. I'm one of those whatever brain it is where I just build it, and I can do it, and that's. That's a little something I kind of figured in, I learned in jail is that um, I got a job in jail. I call it the sweatshop, like where you'd sit with all the sewing machines and 
make a thousand pair of pants or whatever. So the first day I made like literally 600 pairs of sweatpants and I'm like, Whoa, okay. I can make sweatpants. And then the next day I come in and she'd be like, okay, today you're making fitted sheets. And I'm like, but you're in jail. They're not going to babysit you. So she gives me the stuff, gives me the template and she's like, go hard. And by the end of the day, I had made a bunch of fitted sheets. I'm like, Oh yeah, look. And I learned how to make moccasins and I just, some about working in that sweatshop made me realize that you just have to jump, right? Like stop being such a pussy because that is who was me 30 years of my life mm -hmm. was somebody who wouldn't go for it. And now I will. And, um, I really like my dad still helps me a lot to this day, but he doesn't have to change my sandpaper or drill my holes. Or <laughs> That's uh, awesome. That's awesome. So let me ask you, Marnie. So this, I mean, your story is amazing. I, I'm so, so grateful that you're willing to, to share it because I think that the things you've been through, a lot of people have been through. I mean, I, I know people that have been through it. Right. And I know people that have recovered and I know people that, you know, really struggle. And I don't want to say they never will because that's, then I'm like, you know, right. and right. what just you being willing to, to share, I think is really important. And, and I really do appreciate it. But what would you say to someone who's in the middle of any of these situations, you know, any part of these journeys where, you know, you're in the middle of addiction, that's, that's ruining your life. Uh, maybe you, you're just starting to see it or you, you can't get out of that cycle of getting fired from jobs or, or you're in prison right. or whatever. What, what, are the, what are the things you can give to somebody that they can maybe use? Um, this is the hard part. You know, if, if they're already in recovery, um, I'm always like 100% down to help them, you know, um, this is hard. This is the hardest question. Um, it's been easier for me to help. Um, cause obviously there are addictions everywhere. Um, and a lot of the people I did drugs with, I'm friends with their families or whatever. Uh, so people will come to me and they'll be like, okay, well, so-and-so robbed the chicken store for 600 bucks because they had to pay the drug dealer, you know? And as, and Do you my have chicken advice, stores in Canada? Sorry. <laughs> uh, is that a thing? I'm just thinking KFC. Okay, all right. Okay. Oh, well, yeah, that's a chicken store. You're right. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, not like a full live chicken. But. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so my advice to them is let them. Because the only, the only thing that's going to change them is something big happening, Right. Um, like there's people that have been in addiction for so long, never been to jail, never been busted, never been, you know, none of these things because they always have a family member bailing them out. Well, I'll tell you what, my, my family never bailed me out. So my demise came quite quickly. <laughs> um, as for a lot of families, they enable and enabling will will 100% kill the addict. And um, 
it is <laughs> i'm sitting with my dear friend I'm here i'm sorry i just love my growing yeah. my dear friend here is quite an enabler but i didn't enable you yeah she didn't enable me <laughs> we did have late night talks quite often uh even during addiction after addiction um we'd have our little heart to hearts but um enabling is like putting a nail in the coffin that's my that's my opinion other people might yeah. might might think otherwise but um there is actually a poem can i find it quick um about enabling an addict um and i sent it to a friend of mine because her family um they enable this person to the nth degree. Like, and, and it's a person that I myself have done drugs with. So I know him and I know, I know his shenanigans. I know, I know him in so many different ways that um, it's, it's easier for me to sit with their, like to sit with their family and be like, okay, I don't want to tell you you're doing something wrong, <laughs> but they will go broke. Um, um, helping him, you know, like, well, they don't want a drug dealer to kill him. Well, maybe he needs to get his ass beat. I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know what everyone's rock bottom is different, but um, I'm going to find this. Yeah. While you're finding that, I mean, you know, the hard part is enabling comes from love, right? You, right. you love well, that person. Yeah. And you don't want something bad to happen to them. Problem is that they're in such a spiral that they're going to have to find their way out of it at some point you can't pull a, you, you can't pull a person up and that's hard for all of us to deal with, especially mm -hmm. when you love someone. Um, yeah. It was hard for, it was, well, obviously it was hard for my mom to, to just let me be. It was even harder for my dad, yeah. but I got to tell you what, once, if I knew that my dad was going to give up, I, I, I don't, I likely would have melted and caved like, no, 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 no. I'll go to treatment. Like once my dad lost faith in me, there would be literally nothing to live for. Like, um, that was my rock bottom, I guess. Um, and, and ultimately my dad was there when I got arrested, you know, like the one, the one person that is in my corner the most happened to be there when I was getting arrested, you know, and it's like such shame like wearing such shame knowing that I was letting him down. Obviously I'm used to letting my mom down. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, mom. <laughs> but I don't know. But what if once I lost my dad's backing, um, I was just done, you know, that even I don't cry ever and I'm starting to feel a little teary. Um, because if, again, if I lost my dad, I would be a basket case, <laughs> you know, but I've also, I've worked with my dad since I was 18 years old. You know, we worked for the same people and that's who works with me now is my dad. So I pretty much worked with my dad my whole life. Um, plus, so like we have a really good relationship because we see each other work every day <laughs> and have had for many years. Um, so yeah, it was that, that is my, 
clearly you can't let down dad. <laughs> yeah. But um, do you mind if I read this? Please poem? do. Um, it is titled, I will not help kill my child. My baby grew up to be an addict. There was a time when I believed a mother's love could fix anything, but it can't fix this. For too many years, I thought I was helping my child. I thought I was doing my job by keeping him out of trouble and getting him out of trouble and believing him, even when he lied. I tried to keep my child from suffering because that's what mother's love does. I connived, I wheedled, I cried, I begged, and I continued to aid and abet and enable like a champ. I did everything I could to protect my child from himself until finally I realized it wasn't my son that I was protecting. I was protecting the addict, making it easy for the addict, giving the addict one more day to further consume my child's body and mind. I was helping the addict kill the child I was trying to save. My motherly love would need to be contorted and redefined. There's nothing about this kind of love that feels good, but I'm not doing it for me. I will do nothing ever again to help the addict because if I do, I have no hope of ever seeing my child. I love my child and it is because I love him that I'm done paying the addict's ransom. And like goosebumps. <laughs> um, so true. You know, um, so true. And I, I actually, I sent that to a friend of mine and I said, you need to show your mom this, you know, they might still be in denial of sorts, mm -hmm. but, um, I think you need to share this with them because this is so true because they're not helping their son. They're helping the addict. And I then took that poem and I shared it on, um, did I tell you I have a Facebook page about, no. I have a, an addiction, uh, an addictions page, I call it. Um, it's called recovery and addiction. It's actually called hope and then recovery and addiction. Um, the word hope I used to hate because it always came out of my mother's mouth. Like, I hope you're telling the truth. I hope you're not using again. Well, I hope you're not going to waste all that money or, you know, it was always, it was always in a question of negativity. Then in jail, I took a, it was kind of a churchy course and, and the topic of the day was hope. And I was like, Oh God, here we go again. Blah, 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 you know? And just something about how they, I don't even remember what they did or said, but something about how they presented the word hope. It all of a sudden had a whole different meaning to me. And so it's kind of ironic that I would name my, my addictions page hope addiction and recovery because I hate the word so goddamn much, but I don't anymore. <laughs> I don't. Um, and through that addictions page, I've shared my story and others have shared their stories. And um, it was a huge crutch for me. Like whenever I feel myself going drug squirrely, um, I always hop on my addictions page and I'm like, ah, it is like four years later. And I tell you what people, I'm jonesing. Like <laughs> um, things you wouldn't even fathom would bother you all of a sudden 
come up and it's it, it's four years later and I now realize that if I'm ever at a house where there's cocaine I immediately have to leave I don't yeah. just have to I don't just have to hang around and let everyone do their stuff like sorry I gotta go because it's like Robert Downey Jr. he says uh he's allergic to alcohol or drugs or whatever and he says because he breaks out in handcuffs and that's what will happen you know like and they say the minute you try it your brain goes right back to the day you so now oh so I don't even want to go there I actually had a friend that was going through some some tough stuff for a week or so and we were talking and I and she phoned me every day and and we'd walk we'd talk through it and um I'd help her you know feel I could play devil's advocate I could be her friend and tell her everything's awesome but I can also be that person that says it's a slippery slope dude <laughs> like um it may just be this tonight but it's a slippery slope and one of the days we were just talking about the drugs again and um what she was experiencing and um, I don't know, but I immediately got sick. Like, um, I used to have a friend that would throw up every time he knew the drugs were on its way. And I always thought that was just BS, but we were just talking about drugs. Not even for me. We were just talking about drugs, but we had talked about it so many times that day that I was just sick. So I went to my mental health counselor and I was like, what's this? <laughs> Why would I feel sick? I didn't even do the drugs. <laughs> and she said, that's just the way your brain works. Just my, we were talking about it enough that maybe my brain thought that I was getting it. So it makes you physically like your body reacts to it. Like I may say, I don't want cocaine, but my body's saying, yeah, you do. It's crazy. And it's been a lot of years. Like I've been clean almost five years. It's been a lot of years and all of a sudden, almost five years later, we're going to talk about cocaine and then I'm going to barf for like, <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> but that's just, it's an addict's brain. Um, I, I've learned, there's so many things in my life. This is my life philosophy, I guess. So many things in my life that I used to judge people. I used to judge drug addicts. I used to judge people that get divorced. I judge people that get abortions. I judge people that I just every judge, judge, judge. Right. And I was an entitled little bitch and I'm not that person anymore. I'm not entitled. They don't feel entitled. I'm lucky to have a house and I'm lucky to have my kids and I'm lucky to have the car we drive and we're lucky to have food in the house. And we're lucky to have such great people. And, but before it was like, I deserve this car. I deserve this house. I deserve this husband. I deserve, 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 deserve. And every turn that somewhere where I've judged someone or made fun of them, it doesn't matter. It's then happened to me. Uh, I now do not judge. There are so many things that happened to me in life that I said I would never do that are now on a check, like they're checked off. And <laughs> who knew who knew but all i can say is i've learned not to judge yeah because you can't 
you know, every so often you'll, ooh, a drug bust, cool, you know, but then it's like, okay, settle down, Mark. Like, you know, the drug busts are cool, but. Yeah, been there, done that, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but. Yeah. I think that's good advice. And I think, you know, just the fact that you don't know somebody's story and why they are where they are. And, you know, there's always that chance for them to come out of it. But if, if all they get is judgment from everyone, there's, there's no chance for them to come out of anything. Right. So. Right. And I, I definitely can say that my support system, um, which were all of my true friends before um, everything went sour, uh, Lisa, I can just rattle off all of my friends, but they know who they are that stood by me through all of this bullshit. And they're still here on the other side and they're still here supporting me. And if I needed anything, I know people would jump. It's just, I'm too stubborn to ask. (laughs) But, and my parents, I would not be here literally without my parents, (laughs) but um, they, geez, like even as it is like with COVID going on, um, you know, you can't take your kids to work, but I can because my dad's there, <laughs> you know, um, like every, every day involves my parents so much that I truly think that we should just all live in one little house now. <laughs> now that we're now that I'm through my mental health counseling and <laughs> but like it just I could not get through many of my days without my parents yep. and we eat there every day because I work I work from there so we have we have meals together every day and it's just I'm lucky I'm super super lucky to have the family and friends that I do it's great well, Marty Murphy, thank you for uh, for telling your story. I, I, it's, it's really amazing, and I, I I really do believe it takes a tremendous amount of courage for you to come on and, and share these details. Um, but I also believe that the details you're sharing can really make a difference in someone's life. And and even if it's not now, someone might watch this now or listen to this now and then remember a year from now, two years from now, whatever, that they heard this and come back and, and show it to someone and they can – help them recover right. from, from the same types of things. So thanks for sharing your, your Facebook page is hope recovery and addiction. If anybody wants to look for that and re- is it a public thing where they can just join or they need to request uh... they need to request just okay. so that it right. protects the people in the group. Gotcha. Makes sense. And uh, really, really appreciate you coming on. This is a tremendous story and, and thank you for sharing. You're very welcome. <laughs>